Well, kia ora and welcome to Daniel McLaughlin, a columnist for The Listener and I think one of the most interesting deep thinkers about politics, political theory, how the real world works. Daniel, um, welcome on to the Thanks for having me. Uh, what did you think of Chris Hipkins' announcement yesterday that he was ruling out a wealth tax or a capital gains tax while he was leader? It was a bit of a sort of repeat of um, Jacinda Ardern's, yep. you know, not in my political lifetime. I mean, at first, my reaction was just one of the sort of standard cynicism that, you know, it's a sort of continuation of the, of Jacinda Ardern's decision. Um, but Ardern was quite constrained at the time. She had New Zealand Service as a coalition partner. Um, you know, you could kind of see why she said that. And I think that Hipkins' situation is quite different. He, they have this majority. They haven't really done that much with it. They must kind of be thinking a little bit about that. And, you know, if they do lose the election, the people ask this question, what was your government for? And they can kind of say COVID, but it's, it's hard to say more than that. The, the wealth tax is reasonably popular, like for 51%, or 53% in a recent um, News Hub Bread research poll. And Treasury were kind of saying to them that the wheels are falling off the current tax system. You've been relying on this fiscal drag, um, letting inflation just kind of drift people's incomes up into higher and higher tax brackets. And now we're going into recession and that's, that's not really going to fly anymore. So we need to do something. So everything is kind of there. Everything is in place to um, announce this. And they didn't kind of say, we're not going to do it in the budget. We're not going to do it the election. He said, well, we're just never going to do that. We're never, ever going to do it. Which seems really, I, I, I just don't quite understand it, to be honest. And I'm, I'm kind of curious if you have a theory of your own to, to explain what just happened. Yeah. I think we've seen this before, and not just from the Labour Party, but also from National over the years. And we now have a pattern where um, politicians who have a set of options in front of them to reform things and all of the options are uncomfortable, prefer, in a, in a sometimes I think typically Kiwi way, just to shut yeah. the discussion down, not to have the uncomfortable discussion. And one way to do that is if, you know, things are tight and you want to just, you know, get away from the pain is to simply say, well, I'm, yeah. I'm never going to do that. I'm ruling it out. So there's no point in having a discussion about it because in the real world of politics, even if you propose it in um, coalition negotiations, it is something I've already ruled out. So, you know, don't even bother no. bringing it to the table and, and therefore journalists don't need to ask um, minor parties questions about it because, well, it's never going to happen. And we've seen it, for example, on um, retirement issues with uh, uh, John Key um, doing it. And he also um, uh, did it on, um, at least in the first term, on asset sales. And, um, and Labour have done it uh, too, um, firstly with uh, retirement issues. And now... Um, having gone, gone to the um, dark side, I suppose, and talked about extending your retirement age, now also saying we'll rule it out for forever and ever. Uh, that's, that's the impression I have. And it strikes me that it's completely in tune with the idea that a set of frameworks have been set up and they just can't be changed. They are 
forces of financial, um, legal, and um, structural nature that n even politicians and voters just can't beat, so just give up now. Um, you've done some really interesting writing about the administrative state, how politics can be captured. Could you give us a sense of, of um, how, um, how a government can so be captured? So I guess the thing, in, t in terms of my writing about kind of captured state and managerial class, the thing that this reminded me of, this decision of Chris Hipkins, and he's kind of, he's slightly at odds with some of the other senior ministers in his government, Grant Robertson and David Parker, who wanted to do this, is, it seemed really similar to Christopher Luxon's decision to sort of defect from that consensus on medium density housing. Um, and that's something that it's, it's a solution to housing that has members of his caucus in the liberal ring, um, Chris Bishop and Nicola Willis had said, we, you know, we want to get local government out of the housing market. We want to, you know, as, as sort of a center-right party should do, we want the market to solve all these housing problems. And, you know, we, we want to stop having to pay a fortune on emergency housing and the accommodation supplement. And it's all completely consistent with what a, a center-right liberal party would say. And then David Seymour and, and Christopher Luxon kind of decided, no, we're we're just not going to do that. We don't really have to sort of, you know, deliver policy that, that is in line with any kind of value system or ideology. We're just really going to protect property owners and the value of their property and, and sort of, you know, use the state to do that. And, the, and that's really what we're there for. And so we kind of see something similar here with um, tax, David, Parker and Grant Robertson could quite reasonably say, well, we're a left-wing party with a Labour party. It's kind of ridiculous that we're taking more and more tax off Labour and none at all off capital. Like, that just seems at odds with everything we stand for. And so Christopher Hipkins has come along and kind of said, actually, we, we don't really stand for anything other than being in power. So we're just not going to, you know, do that either. So it, it's kind of interesting to me that these ideological battles are happening within the parties rather than between the parties at this stage. Because we're in a situation now under MMP where um, it's very difficult for one party, one political leader to enact a broad sweeping series of um, changes that are legislative, that are administrative, financial, structural, uh, unlike under Muldoon or um, Longy and Douglas following them, that New Zealand has this unusual, you could argue, uh, constitutional situation where uh, in combination with how caucus and cabinet works, basically, if you're in government, pre-MMP, um, as Rob Muldoon showed us, um, you, if you had a strong uh, leader who, who commanded the caucus and um, was appointing ministers to cabinet, uh, no upper house. Basically, they could do everything. And one of the reactions to that post Muldoon was to create some legislative, um, pseudo constitutional frameworks. And I think in here in particular of the Public yeah. Finance Act, the State Sector Act, the Reserve Bank Act, and the Resource Management Act, which all work together with these debt limits and um, 
using the RMA and also the local government reforms to make it virtually impossible to, um, to do any big projects. But also over time, as the, um, as MMP kicked in and it, 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 it essentially weaponized the interests of, uh, people who have a lot at stake in society, they can, um, uh, organize themselves to, um, back uh, one of the winners or one of the, one of those players able to say no to the point now we're in a sort of a, a vetocracy and you see this overseas a lot, I think as well, where whenever there's a temp, an attempt to change defense sort of almost mm. always wins. Could you talk a bit about this idea of a vetocracy and how, um, our administrative class have, um, uh, uh, see themselves in this So theocracy is, is a term that's coined by Francis Fukuyama, this famous political scientist. It's in um, uh, a series of books. He wrote two books on kind of the, the rise of political order. So it's not his really famous book. It's this um, his study of kind of how politics happens and, and what it looks like. And so he describes the uh, sort of advanced liberal democracies of the 21st century as becoming theocracies, which is that um, their systems are just so filled with kind of choke points and um, interested parties and interest groups that anyone at any point can kind of say, um, no, I want to block this or that from happening. And so nothing really happens. So you, it, it, you kind of start out trying to have quite a liberal society. Everyone has a voice, everyone has a seat at the table, and it ends up just a, with an overwhelmingly conservative outcome. The status quo is just completely entrenched because nobody can really do anything. So that's, that's you know, the, the Fukuyama litocracy. I mean, you can, can still kind of do some stuff in New Zealand. The last government built lots of roads and they built the ultra-fast broadband network. So if you kind of have, I, I think it sort of requires one of your top ministers, the PM kind of has to say, I want you to do that and you can't really do anything else. This, you know, you just need to be sitting in meetings with officials screaming at them all day, every day for the next couple of years. And you can probably like push something through if you do that. But this government hasn't been that successful. Like kind of like, like it's done some big stuff. The health reforms are pretty huge, but they haven't been very successful. And so possibly because there hasn't been, you know, that level of attention to you know, delivering what they want to deliver. Yeah. I wonder about this, um, this theory of change in modern politics that because of the way, in a way, defense is stronger than offense. Um, and I think here in particular of how, um, and maybe this is my, uh, weakness but, for military history and to watching too much YouTube of the first world and second world wars where change in technology, the arrival of the machine gun and, um, very powerful, uh, artillery, uh, meant that, um, almost immediately at the outbreak of the first world war, um, when military strategists thought there would, it would be a war of movement, the, um, application of machine guns and artillery uh, forced everyone to dig trenches. And then you got stuck in this process of, um, a stagnant mm. stalemate. And I sense with, with, uh, tightening, um, news cycles with the ability to, um, rapidly, 
uh, appeal to the interests of those who have assets and who have political power to say, hey, this is a change that will take something off you. You end up where the only change you can make in a place like that is to layer on top some sort of benefits for the middle class. And I think if you look back at the big changes um, since MMP, they have typically been using taxpayers' money to provide a new benefit to middle or median voters. And I I wonder if um, uh, this new um, environment, particularly post-MMP, and the focus on um, appealing to median voters has led us down this track where it's actually really hard to take something off off one group and give it to another. We, the only way you can make change is to just to give something to everyone or at yeah. least those who are voting. So there's, um, I mean, that phenomenon you're talking about is loss aversion, that, you know, something that comes up a lot in cognitive psychology that people are really strongly motivated by the idea that they might lose something. And so it kind of messes up our sort of cost-benefit calculations. I just finished um, reading the Zachary Carter biography of Keynes and um, Keynes is kind of in, in the US and he's helping the Roosevelt administration set up the, the, uh, the New Deal. And Wall Street is very opposed because they have to pay more tax. And Keynes makes this, like, you're going to be paying a little bit more tax. Look at how much debt we're raising and we're going to be doing it all through you. You'll make orders of magnitude more money through that debt, then you're going to pay in tax. And they don't really care. Someone is taking something from them. You know, the wealth is being stolen and they don't make that, yeah, sort of trade-off in their heads. And these are, you know, supposedly very smart people. So yeah, I, I agree. The same thing kind of happens. We have this vast, very, very complicated system of rebates and subsidies and, you know, independent earner credits that have kind of built up budget after budget. Um, a lot of them don't really make any sense because they were designed by pollsters rather than treasury officials to kind of win some demographic that the two parties are fighting over. So we don't really see, uh, you know, people's, the, the average earner's salary going up that much over the last 40 years or so, but we do see, you know, the amount of transfers going to, to low and median income earners increasing quite dramatically. And uh, I'm, curious too now in this situation what should voters think about this should they think okay we're now in an era where there's no point in debating big ideas or big changes or big solutions um all we're doing is electing a new manager to manage the status quo and the sort of person we're looking for is someone who comes out and says that they're all about the basics and the bread and butter and they don't do vision and um, they're, they're here not to you know waste time or money on trying to change anything. They're here just to manage the status quo in the most yeah. efficient way possible. How, how do you see that, that sort of uh, spectrum between big change, big vision, big ideas back down to, well, nothing can change anyway. So just appoint me and I'll make sure that, that you can turn the light. I mean, the major there. parties are, are very unpopular at the moment. Like they're normally over the, again, over the last 30 or so years, they've normally, the combined labor national vote is usually at about 80%. Sometimes it's even been higher than that. You know, most of the country was voting for either labor or national and 
right now it's it's kind of hovering at about 60%. That's quite low. You kind of have to go back to the mid-1990s when, you know, people, so many people just hated the two major parties because they didn't trust anything they said. And you saw the rise of New Zealand First and the Alliance and the ACT Party. And so we kind of seem to be going through a similar phase now. It's really, like you say, the two major parties are just these managerial centrist parties. Neither of them really have anything to offer in terms of a vision. So people are going to the other parties and some of the visions are kind of radical and sometimes a little bit scary, but yeah, that's, that's the decision that voters seem to be making in this election. We break out of this um, because on the face of it, um, even if you look, you, you look at the, the election, the um, parties on either end of the spectrum, they may have quite transformative yeah. policies, um, good or bad. But what we see in election campaigns is the party positions going up. And then the first thing the journalists yes. do is go straight to the centrist parties and, and say, yeah. which ones are you going to yeah. rule out? I mean, something that I think is kind of interesting this time around is the Green Party, because they, I mean, their MPs will sit down at the table and negotiate, but it's the delegates who get to vote on whether or not the deal is made. And so... You know, the, the MPs will kind of sit down with Labour and Labour will say, well, we'll make you, we'll make you foreign minister and we'll create all these new ministries and commissions for you. And if they take that back to the delegates and the delegates say, well, we just don't care about those things. We care about a wealth tax that kind of puts them in an interesting situation. It's sort of an oddly paradoxical thing where by making their MPs a little bit powerless, they enhance their power, maybe. Um, you know, I'm not sure if it's actually going to work out that way, but that's an interesting thing that might happen this time around. Yeah, James Shaw said yesterday there was a, a possibility that um, if any deal was put to the delegates, they would yeah. say no, and that the Greens would yep. have to sit on the crossbenches. It's not clear to me exactly what sitting on the crossbenches means. Um, a really purist, you know, hardcore sitting on the crossbenches would mean no agreement on yeah. um, supply and confidence um, and, and uh, a lot, uh, uh, as well as no right. ministries and yeah. no deals, if you like, um, with the threat that the remote threat yeah. that at any point um, a vote of confidence or a budget could fail because the Greens refused to let it through, yeah. which would lead to an election rather than the opposite as we currently see um, and which is highly likely, which is the Greens uh, uh, doing a deal with national, um, I don't, you're right. No. The delegates wouldn't accept that, but, um, what it's meant though, is that there is the prospect if the, if the delegates are still very grumpy, um, that they say no and force the greens onto the cross benches leading to, you know, the potential hair trigger back to the voters again thing, no. which we haven't actually seen during MMP and a lot of people warned we I were mean, going to see. I imagine that you would say, we're going to support you on confidence and supply, um, or we, well, we're going to sit down at every budget and make a deal about supporting you and everything else that you want to pass. That's just something where you negotiate with us and you'll give us something. And like, that would be an incredibly difficult way to govern, especially if you're having to do it with the Greens and Te Pāti Māori at the same time. I mean, that would just be really hard work. Um, and I, I can't quite imagine what that government would look like. And I'm, 
I, could, I, I suspect Labour would do just about anything to avoid being in that position because you just need to pass so much legislation just on a day-to-day -day basis to keep the country running. And if you're having to sit down and hammer something out and give something away every single time, that, yeah, that would just be really difficult. And one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, you're writing about mm -hmm. the administrative state and the captured state, is that this um, lack of apparent power of politicians or voters to um, uh, enact any change or get any, you know, substantial um, power uh, to do any change means that if you're in the administration and you're a public servant, or some sort of um, long-term advisor, you're able to say, um, yep, good idea, yeah. like the idea of the change, um, but let me do a study on that and, and in brackets, and I'm not, that this is the thing I'm not telling you, um, I'm just going to wait until something else changes or some, the minister gets kicked out or there's a change of government and I can just, um, um, flannel my way to not having to change because I Yeah, I mean, there was a, a sort of micro scandal a few months ago when um, the DIA officials were just rewriting the laws on the yeah. um, Three Waters proposal, Ooh. just just kind of changing it and not really just doing that. And I mean, that's not how our democracy is supposed to work at all. That's, that's supposed to be. You know, the MPs sit between that process and we don't really have a democracy if that doesn't happen. But yeah, they, I mean, they do seem to have tremendous power and influence, um, especially over spending and procurement, the, the types of things that this government especially is spending money on, I think like frustrates the government itself. They kind of don't know why, um, they're allocating money for mental health, for example. And it's just not going anywhere or doing anything. Um, and the infrastructure commission came out with a report recently into why that was. And they said it was because the officials, uh, you know, driving that just didn't really know what they were doing. So they just kind of wasted lots of money and, and didn't deliver anything, which is amazing. It, it's an amazing challenge to the left because if you kind of think, well, we need state capacity and we just need to tax the wealthy more and, you know, that will kind of overcome neoliberal austerity and we'll be living in a, a better society. The idea that you could do all of that and just still not be delivering anything to the public because the officials in charge of it don't know what they're doing is, you know, it's, it's quite a big challenge to that project. Yeah. So just, just finally, um, for our listeners who, you know, want to try and improve things and want to see a contest of ideas and to vote, um, on something that actually improves things, what would you say to them? Because we're heading into an election campaign where it seems like all the options are being ruled yeah. out before, before the starting gun has even gone out. And also because of that, um, political journalists and, you know, the media coverage is less focused on the issues because mm. we can't talk about those and much more focused on the contest, the horse yeah. race. I mean, I think we're, like we're getting reasonably good coverage of the issues, I think. I mean, we had, we've had quite comprehensive coverage of the, you know, the, the tax, the capital gains decision. Um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know who people should vote for. I, I do kind of think that the sentiment that some of the major parties aren't the solution to every, to anything is, is quite a solid one. And that 
I, you know, you should look at an alternative there. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of don't think it's my job to tell people who they should vote for. I mean, I make donations to effective charities and I kind of think that's the way that I affect positive change in the world. I don't really think that, um, you know, voting in the New Zealand political system has a really dramatic um, influence on, you know, the amount of good in the world. So I think you should try and find an alternative way to do that. Yeah. It's interesting. Quite a few politicians have sort of left politics and gone back to grassroots organizing and, um, you know, uh, NGOs to try to um, achieve change, having sort of given up on working the, within the system. The, but um, the, we'll see the, how that There's goes. a book um, that I was thinking about in the last couple of days with this Labour announcement. Um, Alan Clark, who was a, a defence minister under Thatcher, and he wrote these incredible diaries that he published after he left politics. And towards the end of them of his time in power, he kind of realises that he hasn't really done anything. You know, uh, like his policies didn't get through. They were sort of defeated by his enemies and his own caucus. And he says, you know, all that work and all that sacrifice and I have nothing to show for it, but the passing of time and the intrusion of age. And I sort of wondered, is that how, you know, are some Labour politicians having the same thought, you know, like if it does make you wonder if you were young and thinking of going into politics. You're not going to be as charismatic as Jacinda Ardern. You're not going to be as clever as David Parker and or Grant Robertson. And they, they kind of haven't really delivered the change I think they would have liked to when they were going into that. And it does, yeah, like it's, it does make you wonder if that is the way to make change. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Daniel McLaughlin, uh, thank you so much for being on the Kaka. And um, uh, I'd recommend our readers subscribe um, and support uh, Daniel's work. Um, through the listener or wherever he, he turns up. Um, and I um, really appreciate cool. your time. Thanks, Bennett. Thank you very much. Cheers.